No, what I was saying is just, uh, I'm just always amazed at uh, who God kind of raises up and, and uh, even puts us in places where maybe it's not our, our, our comfort zone, but at the same time says, yeah, but I want you to depend on me, not on what you're comfortable with. Depend on me, and I want to use you to glorify my name. So um, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 27. We begin the second to the, the last chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, again, this uh, it's in a sense, time is slowing down. Um, we see that everything that is transpiring right now in the last chapter and this chapter is all happening within a 24-hour period. And so there's a lot taking place. Matthew's, you know, there's not these big swaths or big kind of big pictures. Here's an event. Here's an exciting thing that happened there. But now it's like we're getting detail by detail, moment by moment interaction uh, with what's taking place in the life and ultimately what's leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so to give you a little context, of where we came from last week. Last week, last week, if you were with us, you recall that we talked about the, the denial or the betrayal of Peter. And uh, in Peter, we see that uh, even though he, Jesus says, you will deny me three times, he says, that's not true. Uh, I will never deny you. And then sure enough, Jesus was right. Peter was wrong. And he goes away weeping bitterly because he had just betrayed his best friend. So we pick up from that context in Matthew 27, starting in verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver and the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, You have said it so. Then when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. 
Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? They said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, What shall we do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. I know some of you, I'm not sure if everyone, have heard of the name Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom uh, has written a number of books. One such book that if you don't know much about her or, or know very little about her, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place, in which she and her family actually, uh, during the, the World War II, were actually uh, hiding Jews in their house to save them from the Holocaust. Obviously taking great risk in the process. Upon reflection and upon just having a life that is very filled and very much used by God, Corey Ten Boom wrote a poem called The Weaving, a poem in which I would like to read for you right now. She says, My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth so steadily. Oftentimes he weaveth sorrow, and I, in foolish pride, forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reasons why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. This imagery that Corey Tim Boom captures for us in this, in this poem uh, is really kind of the image of a canvas or a tapestry. Uh, and, and depending on which side you look at, uh, a tapestry or a canvas or even a cross stitch will either have a picture that is, that is somewhat pleasing to the eye or if, depending on the other side will also reveal more of a distorted and, and maybe messy picture. Um, in other words, on the top side, you see what is meant to be seen. But on the underside, you see a distorted, kind of a crisscrossing of string everywhere. Everything seems to look a little bit messy and not as pleasant to the eye. In fact, uh, if you want to get a little idea, this is what kind of a front side and a back side of a cross stitch looks like. The front side, you can see an obvious picture, but the back side is just a mess of threads. They're not always that messy, but I want to have an extreme example to kind of explain what I'm getting at here. We see that ultimately um, 
that, that the God is kind of weaving this story here. And, and, and the reason why I think it matters so much is because it's kind of how life works. It's how our lives are kind of working. We see that circumstances in our life can sometimes seem messy, right? We, we can oftentimes look at our circumstances or the situation we find ourselves in and all we see is a kind of a distorted image. And sometimes it can even be confusing in the present because we only see the backside. We only see the underside of the tapestry. In fact, sometimes in our hardship and in our strife, it can feel like that there's, uh, there's no rhyme or reason to our struggle. It can even seem like that God doesn't care or that, that he's not in control, yet when we view life from the front side or the upper side of a tapestry, it is then that we begin to realize that all our struggles, all our pain, all our hardship are actually part of a picture that God is so masterfully weaving for his glory. It's why Paul is able to relate these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. A familiar passage when he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies For we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. In other words, as Paul is relating, as even Tori Tim Boom is, is, is alluding to, is that our struggle, your struggle, your pain is not in vain. Your pain and your struggle is not in vain. In fact, I believe that Scripture tells us it is ordained by God both to mature us, that we might become more Christ-like, as well as to foster life and hope in others. I believe this reality is definitely true of Jesus and his disciples in our passage this morning. And if you kind of just kind of take a more of a 30,000 foot perspective and just see all the events that are transpiring, no doubt the perspective of the disciples when Jesus is being slandered and, and falsely accused and unjustly sentenced and condemned to a criminal's death was, a just, was merely just a partial understanding, it was a partial perspective of what was really going on. In other words, the disciples could only see the underside of the tapestry, right? They could only see the crisscrossing of strings. Yes, they knew things were going on, but they couldn't quite see clearly. But what was actually going on through all the horrific actions of wicked men was that God was saving the world. All, that, all the evil inflicted onto Jesus was actually a fulfillment of prophecy. It was a means by which God was freeing us from our sin. So as the artist of all creation, God was weaving a redemptive picture that was not fully understood. It was not fully realized during those terrible events that led up to the crucifixion of Jesus. But of course, from our vantage point now, 
The perspective we now see and the, the perspective the disciples saw later was that it was all part of God's doing all along. It sort of resonates with what Joseph said, you know, to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50. What you intended for evil, God was ordaining for good. On one hand, yes, people are responsible for their own actions. At the same time, God is sovereign over all people's decisions and actions. The point that I want to drive home over and again this morning, the point that we need to see in the midst of all the events that transpire in the the crucifixion or the events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus is this. The actions of evil men cannot hinder the redemptive plan of God. They can only fulfill it. Let me just say that again. The actions of evil men cannot hinder the redemptive plan of God. They can only fulfill it. And I believe in our passage this morning, it seems as though evil has no bounds and that the wicked actions of people are met with very little or to to no resistance. I mean, look at the different characters, the different groups of people that we see active and alive and very much inflicting great injustice. First of all, we have Judas the betrayer, right? As we've already discussed earlier, Judas was one of the 12 disciples. He heard all of Jesus' teachings. He observed Jesus' miracles. In fact, he was sent out when Jesus sent out his disciples. He was the one sent out. He was also empowered to do great things. And yet Judas at the same time was a sham. He was a chameleon. He looked the parts. He played the part. He said the right things. He was a man who followed Jesus, but we realize later that he only followed Jesus for self-serving gain. And of course, when he realized that following Jesus was not going to lead to anything better, following Jesus was actually going to lead to probably persecution as he promised, then he betrayed him to to the wicked religious leaders. In fact, we see in the garden, as we've already discussed, that the way in which Judas, of all things, chooses to identify who Jesus is is that he gives Jesus a kiss, kind of a false sense of affection. But of course, as we see, as time continues, Judas finally comes to his senses. We see that he realizes his treachery and he finally senses that he's like, oh man, I've just... just, I've just given up an innocent man. But unfortunately, his guilt, his treachery is too late. And even though he attempts to give back the blood money, it is no use. The betrayal is done. He is guilty of sinning against God by betraying the Son of God. And the only way in which Judas can appease his guilty conscience is by killing himself. And of course, as we, from our vantage point today, look at the life of Judas, it is an example of pure tragedy. Someone who is in the presence of Jesus, the Son of God, so close and yet so lost. Of course, we also have the hate and the envy of the religious leaders, and we've already discussed this as well, but we Early on in Jesus' ministry, they wanted to kill Jesus out of envy and jealousy because he was gathering a crowd and all of a sudden the, the control that they had over people was beginning to wane more and more. 
And of course, they tried to kill Jesus many times and they failed every single time. And so now we see that uh, they have another attempt, they have another opportunity, and this time they will not fail. They will do whatever it takes in order to carry out their wicked actions and to kill Jesus. The irony is that even though Herod and even though Pilate could not find any fault in Jesus, at the same time, they also knew why the religious leaders have put him on trial. Because they were envious, they were jealous, they, and they hated. And that was the motivation that drove all of this. But even though these rules were, rulers were able to read between the lines, so to speak, we see that it also exposes their own wicked motives. And that brings us to the cowardice of Pilate and Herod. You see, both of these rulers had the power to stop everything. Both of these rulers knew that Jesus was not guilty. Both of these rulers knew that even the accusations brought against Jesus were not deserving of death. But both of these rulers capitulated to the people. Why, you may ask? Because their career mattered more than doing the right thing. The career mattered more than the truth. You see, Pilate was already in hot water with Caesar. There had already been a few Jewish rebellions or Jewish uprisings, and so he was starting getting a, a, a bad reputation with his superiors. And so here we have another riot on our hands, and, and, and Pilate's able to recognize this going, i got to squelch this as soon as possible. And the only way to squelch this is not to do the right thing. The only way to squelch this is give the people what they want. Herod, though Matthew's gospel doesn't refer to this, but Luke's gospel does, Pilate actually sends Jesus over to Herod. Well, he's not, this isn't my issue, so he sends him off to Herod, which is the Jewish leader, ruler. And Herod just wants to see Jesus perform a miracle. He, has nothing, he doesn't even think Jesus is guilty, obviously, but he wants to see Jesus perform a miracle, but the religious leaders put a lot of uh, pressure on him. And of course, he doesn't want uh, uh, to be uh, viewed in a bad light with the Jewish people. And so what he does, he's like, Jesus is going to perform a miracle. They're putting the hot water, put me in hot water. He sends them back to Pilate. Pilate capitulates to the people out of his own self-interest. And of course, then we have the unruly and fickle mob. You know, the religious leaders stirred up the crowd and convinced them that Jesus was guilty and deserving of death. In fact, Barabbas was more deserving of being released than Jesus was. Ironically, some of these same people that were singing Jesus' praises, remember? Palm Sunday, which will be coming up very shortly here. We see that they're singing his praises, chanting, glory to God, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then a week later, they're yelling, crucify him. Give us Barabbas, but crucify Jesus. So if we were to summarize everything that's kind of taking place in these hours of Jesus' life, we see that Jesus is convicted by this kind of kangaroo court, right? The, the, the entire process is corrupt. It's unjust. It violated both Jewish law as well as Roman law. In fact, the whole irony of this, everything that's transpiring right now, is that they convicted Jesus to death because they believed he was guilty of blasphemy and violating their law. And the irony of all this is that in order to convict Jesus of these crimes, they too had to violate the law. They too had to, to go against their entire justice system to get what they wanted. It's, the, it's kind of the proverbial, the pot calling the kettle black. 
It's the greatest form of hypocrisy. And of course, in a manner too late, Judas realizes his own, uh, that he is his own complicit betrayal and condemning of an innocent man, but it's too late. And we have, in order to protect their careers, both Pilate as well as Herod, they don't save Jesus. They give the people what they want. And the crowd who once was praising him are now demanding his death. What are we to make of all this? How are, how are you and I supposed to think? How are the disciples in this moment supposed to think? But how are, how are you and I to think about everything in light of the uninhibited wickedness against Jesus? Once again, it brings us back to an important point. The point is this, that the actions of evil men cannot hinder the redemptive plan of God. They can only fulfill it. This is why Jesus, in his response, in light of all the accusation and injustice that is inflicted, his actions are kind of instructive for you and for me this morning. I mean, do you notice how Jesus responds? Do you notice what he says? He says nothing. Nothing? With all the insults, with all the false accusations, with all the terrible things that they're doing and saying against him, with this whole kind of corrupt trial system, I mean, everybody knows this is a sham, and what does he say? Nothing. How in the world can Jesus say nothing at a time like this? I mean, he should be building his defense. I mean, he is innocent. Everybody knows he's innocent. How can he just stand there? Well, I think there's a few reasons why Jesus stands there and says nothing. Most practically being because the people are not interested in the truth. It was related to me earlier this week, a quote. I don't know who even said it. But it says this, always remember that the, always remember that the crowd chose Barabbas. Not because they loved him, but because they hated the truth. You know, Proverbs 26 says this, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. I think Jesus, knowing the heart of people very well, it's almost kind of a life lesson for us. You know, when people are uncontrolled in their emotional state, that's usually not the time and place to receive truth, let alone hear another side. In this case, the people did not want to hear the truth. They only wanted to listen to what they agreed with or that which agreed with their predetermined will. But I think an even more profound reason why Jesus stands there and says nothing, that he doesn't defend himself, was because everything that was unfolding was actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Remember what Isaiah says in, in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. In other words, everything that happened, all the anger, all the hate, all the wickedness, all the mistreatment, all the injustice, everything was a fulfillment of God's will. Even after his resurrection, Jesus on the road to Emmaus 
is talking to two travelers. They don't recognize who he is, but in Luke 24, Jesus says this, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for, for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Once again, the actions of evil men cannot hinder the redemptive plan of God. They can only fulfill them. The question is, what does this mean for you and for me? How does that timeless or foundational truth affect your life and my life? How does the example of Jesus influence our response to injustice? How does the example of Jesus strengthen you in your struggle, in your hardship? There's two points of application that I believe are necessary for us this morning. The first is this, that we must rest in the sovereign control of God. Now, I know sometimes if you've grown up in the church, you hear that and you're all, yeah, 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 yeah. But it's almost like this, the Lord keeps bringing us, bringing us back to this necessary point of reference. Rest, be at peace in my sovereign control. You might recall from a few weeks ago, this was Corey's final point when he preached. And I think it's worth revisiting again. And as I reflect back on God's sovereign control, I I tell you what, I am clinging to it as if my own well-being and sanity depends on it. I don't think I had to convince you that this past year has been somewhat brutal in nature. And I know for all of us, we've all had to be stretched and we've all been, been kind of pulled many ways that, are, that is unfamiliar to us. Ever since the, kind of the beginning of COVID and everything and all the changes that have transpired in the church and in our community and around the world have just been rough. There's no other way to put it. Every church in the world has been forced to navigate and struggle through uh, this pandemic Every church leadership has been forced to make decisions that have altered the life of their churches. Every decision made by church leadership has been met with mixed responses. Some good, some bad. Some respectful, some not so respectful. And to add to all this, there's the seeming political instability in our country. There's the social unrest We have cancel culture and woke movement and Antifa and Black Lives Matter, all these different things. There is just, we have never been more divided than now. But it comes back to the same question What is our response? How are you, as followers of Jesus, call to respond in your own personal struggle maybe in when you've experienced injustice falsely accused mischaracterized whatever it may be how are you to respond 
I think one of the truths, much like Jesus knew, is to remember and to never forget that God has been and will always be in control of his creation. May we not part ways from that foundational truth. You see, the, if, you, if you look at the life of Jesus, he's the only one calm in everything. Have you, have you noticed that in, when we go through Passion Week? Everybody else is chaotic. Everybody else is furious. Every emotional state is being manifested right now, either in fear or anger or just outright bitterness, and Jesus is the only one calm. How can Jesus remain calm when all the, the when he knows what he's about to experience? When he was already in agony in the garden of Gethsemane, how can he be calm for such a time as this? I believe that Jesus is calm, that he's at peace because he knows his Father is in control. Yes, people are accountable to their own actions, as I already mentioned, but God is the one who is weaving the story of life, that he is the one who is fulfilling his purposes for the ultimate result to bring glory to his name. My wife and I are going, we're reading through Exodus right now. And on my way down to California a couple weeks ago, I went, I love audio books. It's the greatest way to pass, have windshield time. So I have hours and I'm going through multiple audio books as well as multiple books of the Bible. I went through the book of Exodus. It was so rich. And it dawned on me because again, you're all, I'm always picking up details that I've kind of missed before. Sometimes listening versus reading helps you catch on to things. And in Exodus chapter 14, it was very interesting. You know, the people of Israel finally leaving Egypt, plague after plague after plague, and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and finally he releases them. And they're wandering through the desert, and God says this, I'm going to bring my people to this certain point, and then they're going to have to turn around because it's a dead end. And then I'm going to bring them back. And again, the pillar of fire and the cloud is leading them to a dead end and then bringing them back. And he says, then the, people of, then the people of Egypt are going to think they don't know what they're doing. And they're lost. They're confused. Let's rally them and bring them back as our slaves. And so the army of Egypt comes out and God says this, all this is orchestrated by me. I'm purposely confusing the Egyptians to think that they don't know what's going on, that they don't know where they're going. And actually, I'm the one orchestrating everything. And they're going to turn around, and I'm going to wipe out the Egyptian army, and I'm going to save my people and have them cross through the Red Sea, and all the nations of the world will know the God of Israel. So brothers and sisters, rest in this fact. That God does all things for the glory of his name. From our vantage point, it seems confusing at times. From our perspective, it can confound us, even frustrate us, because we're like, how in the world can this be a good idea, God? How in the world can this be good? Even though we're just saying you're a good, good father. And yet we see that as Jesus well understood that his father was in absolute control. And because God is in absolute control, that brings us to a second point of application and that is a charge to you and to me. That charge is to endure hardship faithfully. Endure hardship faithfully. 
I read this past week uh, an article. It's actually an interview, uh, an interview of Tim Keller, who is currently um, going through treatment for pancreatic cancer. He's actually he wrote a book in the midst of his treatment process called Hope. And in this interview, I thought there was just a part that I wanted to pull out because I thought it was very apropos. I read it to my, my life group this week, and I would like to read it to you. It says this, what characteristic, is most signif- what characteristic is the most significant predictor of worldly success? There's the question for us. What is the most, what is the most significant predictor of worldly success? Is it, is it intelligence? Is it talent? Is it attractiveness? He goes on to say, years of social science research has shown it isn't any of those. No, the most reliable predictor of worldly success is grit. Grit is, the, is also one of the most important character traits for spiritual formation. If you want to become like Jesus, you need to develop godly grit. Keller goes on to say, the Bible's terms for grit are steadfastness and endurance. Steadfastness is the determination, as Paul says, to stand firm and refusing to let anything move you from your goal. It is the resolve to keep working from the Lord, for the Lord no matter what trials may come. Endurance is the determination to keep moving forward your, toward your goal despite the external challenges and get this, the internal weariness. No doubt many of us can experience or relate to the internal weariness. Godly grit is a trait empowered by God's grace that we acquire through standing firm in the face of challenges and adversity. Developing godly grit helps us to develop gritty hope. Even uh, Rob DeCoo actually shared this I don't know if you know who Rob Deku is. He does, he's an ultra-athlete. He does things that most of us here would call a nightmare. But he says he's, he's actually following a guy and actually helping a guy right now who's doing 100 Ironmans in 100 days. Do you know what an Ironman is? An Ironman is where you run 26.2 miles, you bike over 100 miles, I think 112 miles, and you, and you um, swim about two and a half miles. He's doing 100 of those in 100 days. Who's signing up? Not it. But the fact is, as he was talking to this guy who's doing this, again, there's some people that have a special genetic ability to kind of pull these kind of things off. This guy was actually on one of his races. He actually strained or I think sprained kind of his ankle, and so he's limping along, and he's asking, how are you pushing through this? And obviously he's like, you know, this is kind of a game changer for you. And he says, no, no, no. This is winning. The very fact that I keep going means this is winning. In other words, winning does not mean the absence of hardship or injury, but it is pushing through and not giving up in spite of it. Winning is finishing. That's why Peter will relate to us even after he hearkens back on his own denial of Jesus, and he says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What does this mean, to, as Peter says, to follow the example of Christ? It means, as Romans 12 says, to be patient in tribulation. It means, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, to be steadfast, to be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It means, as Galatians 6, 9 says, to not grow weary in doing good, but in due season you will reap if, there's a condition, if you do not give up. How do we respond to our personal hardships? Rest in God's sovereign control and endure by His grace your hardship faithfully. And I know that you are grateful that Jesus was patient in tribulation, that He did not grow weary in doing good, that He didn't throw in the towel, so to speak that he did not choose the path of least resistance. No, Jesus was faithful to the end. He didn't give up. He entrusted himself to his Father. He surrendered his will to his Father. He endured hardship faithfully. And as a result of his faithfulness, you and I are reconciled to God. As a result of his faithfulness, our sins are forgiven. As a result of his faithful endurance, we are guaranteed to live with Father God and King Jesus by the Spirit of Christ forever. That's what Jesus accomplished through his endurance. The verse that we keep repeating, repeating and I think is worth mulling over almost daily in our minds, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Don't give up, brothers and sisters. Remember that Jesus did not give up, and look what we gain because of it. Do not give up. Perhaps God is ministering to your heart right now. Perhaps he's speaking to you. Perhaps he's wanting to kind of, for you to take a few moments just to pray to him. Take this time right now to pray to God. Say, Lord, I'm listening. Lord, help me.